0: Since the dawn of human civilization, people wanted to live longer and healthier lives. But only during the 20th century, life expectancies in major developed countries doubled and continue to increase. Exponential advances in science and technology transformed every aspect of our daily life and now we're at a point of human evolution when our understanding of human biology can help us intelligently develop personalized therapeutic interventions, discover new drugs or reposition the old ones to treat or even cure complex diseases, slow down or even reverse aging.
1: Hello Alex.
0: Hi Adam pleasure
1: to be here. It's wonderful to have you. So I read your book Ageless Generation a little while ago. I didn't realize you were on my Facebook friends list though until I saw you and I thought, oh that name looks familiar and here you are today. It's amazing how life works. So tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Facebook works in mysterious ways. A few words about myself. My name is Alex Javankov and I am a director. Uh, well, now I'm uh, the chief science officer of the Biogerontology Research Foundation. It's a UK-based charity supporting aging research worldwide. I'm also the CEO of uh, Insilico Medicine. It's uh, a bioinformatics and big data and deep learning company using signaling pathway analysis uh, for aging research and drug repurposing. So. I have a broad range of uh, academic interests, most of them are structured around bioinformatics of aging, and my mission in life, my purpose is to combat aging, but in the most credible and most credible way and within the regulatory, regulatory boundaries. We have today. I guess you wanted to talk about my book first, right?
1: Well, that is very fascinating. I would like to talk about the technicalities of, or some of the technicalities of, your bioinformatics research. But yes, let's talk about your book first and the changing demographic landscape of the world.
0: The whole purpose of the book was to introduce the sense of urgency for aging research. I'm basically showing that. Uh, well, three things. First is, uh, regardless of what you think about aging and whether you think that it's going to uh, cause overpopulation or attract uh, TRS resources of this world in any way or cause, cause global warming or wars, whatever, well, here is news for you. The train has already left the station and uh, the population is growing and the number of elderly is growing with it. Uh, at a very rapid pace. So unless we can uh, solve aging in the very near future and extend the healthy, productive longevity of the retiring population, we are likely to get into the state of uh, economic decline and collapse. Aging research is not an option anymore. It's the only way to prevent the economy from collapsing. Well, perhaps not the only way, the general advances in uh, technology all over the place may yield some uh, um, unprecedented and uh, difficult to forecast economic gains where we don't need to work. In that case, we won't have a problem with the elderly, but uh, unless that happens, unless some very unlikely miracles happen, we are going to face a very large number of elderly requiring healthcare and social security. Unless uh, we find working interventions in aging and uh, at least keep the population in late life healthier, we will see bankruptcies in major developed countries, starting from the U.S. You know, if you are in China or India or Russia right now and you think that, okay, the state of the U.S. economy does not concern you, you you're wrong because that's uh, uh, the beating heart of the world's economy, and if something happens uh, to the U.S., the whole whole, whole world was going to go boom. So that's what some of the people in the uh, developing world are um, trying to uh, antagonize the U.S. in one way or another, not understand is that this is the country that keeps the world's economy going. So what we did recently is uh, we looked at the demographic trends in the U.S., and we looked at the current uh, national debt, uh, and we looked at um, uh, the unfunded fiscal liabilities, um, essentially what the government owes to its population in the form of uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, over their life lifespans. And then we dis- uh, discounted that into today, uh, using very conservative assumptions, so using I think, 81 years of age for life expectancy, which is close to current numbers. And we saw that uh, even with those numbers extrapolated into the future, the net present value of unfunded fiscal liabilities are already over $300 trillion. That is significantly over the current uh, national debt level, uh, which is what some were, in the uh, some somewhere in the range of what uh, seven trillion dollars, yeah, several, uh, may, may, maybe already eight, <laughs> considering the uh, recent fiscal def- deficit. So even the basic math, if you think about one person over sixty-five, meaning someone who is qualified to uh, receive uh, uh, both Medicare and Medicaid and qualified for social security. So we're talking about 35000 37000 a year as a social security, and healthcare package. So think about it. The uh, average income for per capita in the U.S. is already smaller than that. So you have to have more people working to just support. So it's not one-to-one. You have to have several people working to support one retiree. And um, as ratio of the retirees and the population increases, um, we are going to have a significant burden in the economy. So that's one. I
1: Expe- think many people are more interested in the solution to this problem because it's obvious that it is real and that it's being experienced in countries like Japan and Italy already.
0: It's not obvious to many people. Uh, most of the discussion partners I have those conversations with, first ask you about, okay, what's going to happen if you solve aging? Uh, we're going to get into overpopulation. We're going to get to the state of economic decline. We're going to get into the whole bag of worms. And uh, my book essentially shows that if we don't solve aging within the next 15, 20 years, and I'm not talking about solving aging uh, and reaching immortality. I'm talking about making the population healthier in late life and increasing healthy productive longevity we are going to get an economic collapse and in that case there is a chance that a lot of nonlinear events are going to happen and uh, we might go back to the dark ages not necessarily to the dark dark ages in some of the countries you know we can light a match throw it in the population and uh, it will go crazy right we've seen that in Iran we've seen that in uh, the IS state, what we how we call it, whenever you've got a significant economic decline and possibly collapse, you've got all kinds of issues in the population. And we might actually roll back a couple decades in uh, both technology and economy if we ignore the current population trends, which is a huge percentage of the elderly in a demographic. So we need to take care of them. The second point that I'm making also is that productive longevity is the source of economic growth. So it's the new source of economic growth. We can actually build the whole economic theory around it. There are, we already have the tools to extend healthy productive longevity. We just need to ensure that we bring all the pieces of the puzzle together and start working towards a specific goal, not just doing research for research or clinical trials to you know, extend the, the life of the patient uh, on the deathbed marginally, but to actually work towards solutions and set ourselves targets for productive longevity that we need to reach with technology. What I did personally is the first step I made when I looked at uh, the trends analysis on aging research, I started looking at government grants, I started looking at how governments spend their money. On research and how do large pharmaceutical companies spend their money on clinical research. I built a tool called the Aging Portfolio. You can go online and uh, look at agingportfolio.org. It's not just the aging grants. Uh, all National Institute of Health grants, it's National Science Foundation grants, European Commission, Australia, Canada over the past 25 years are uh, brought together in one database and then uh, structured into a taxonomy of more than 360 categories related to aging research but both natural sciences and social and behavioral sciences and groomed together into categories both using volunteer editors and machine learning. So that's what aging portfolio is and we looked at some of the most promising areas that are close to market and most likely yield good academic publications and possible advances in the clinic. We used the tool to identify some of the most prospective areas. And one of those areas I chose for myself as uh, an area to focus on, essentially, to try to develop some working interventions on aging uh, within the next decade or so. And that's how in silico medicine came to be. We essentially started from cancer, started looking at various bioinformatics approaches to first personalize a range of cancer treatments to specific patients. I guess if you integrate, uh, if you already integrated video. So we do healing path analysis and uh, intelligent uh, drug selection for individual patients and also for population groups. So we're looking for universal drugs, primarily in cancer. But we are extrapolating this technology to screen for possible geroprotective drugs, drugs that uh, either slow down aging or repair some age-related processes. And uh, about a year ago, uh, we did our first in-silico screen. Um, massive screen, we processed uh, more than uh, 3.7 million different samples. I'm not talking about patient samples, but uh, a variety of gene expression samples coming from all over the place, from the publicly available sources and from our own uh, internal, uh, internal generated data. And then we uh, screened it against more than 40,000 different drugs linked to gene expression profiles and selected uh, just over 250 compounds that might be effective GR protectors, took the top 10, and now we are playing around with those compounds in the lab, essentially incubating uh, various human cell lines and primary cells from coming from different tissues uh, and looking at the effects of those drugs on those tissues. Some of those drugs are reasonably safe to use, so it's possible to maybe uh, even experiment on human patients today.
1: So you took a, a sort of shotgun approach. You had a large number of potential candidates and you are steadily narrowing them down. Correct. And for my viewers who don't know, viewers, listeners who don't, could you tell us a little bit about bioinformatics and how, what it is and how it works?
0: Well, bioinformatics is uh, already a very broad field. So an easy way to describe it would be the use of computers uh, to um, assist biologists in interpreting uh, the data or uh, designing their experiments or even running the experiments uh, in a computer. So it's computer-assisted biology. That's bioinformatics.
1: Excellent. Yes. Okay.
0: One of the, uh, so to speak, unorthodox things about our company is that uh, we are very geographically distributed. So, we have 33 people working for in silico, and uh, every one of those people is dedicated to aging research. So, uh, I would say it's probably the largest team uh, in the world in a commercial bioinformatics company focusing on aging research. So, of course, there is human longevity, there is Calico, but in our case, I think we've got more people dedicated and believing in aging research than any other group. And we've got people in uh, Russia, it's a large development office. We've got people in the UK, Poland, uh, China. Our headquarters are uh, at Johns Hopkins University uh, in Baltimore. So, several people working there. And uh, we started working with large pharma, so some of the top pharmaceutical companies in the world helping them repurpose their drugs from a, one cancer to another cancer or from uh, one condition to no, 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 uh, known condition to an age-related disease using their own data or uh, publicly available data. As we can see already in cancer, our technology is very effective. And about half a year ago, we started going into deep learning. So applying machine le- advanced machine learning Algorithms to predict the, uh, the efficacy of the various drugs in cancer and some age-related diseases. And now we're slowly moving into applying deep learning to screen for geroprotectors. So one of the interesting things that, we, that we've identified uh, over the past year is that we figured out that some of the geroprotectors will be very few of the geroprotectors will work universally in many organs and tissues. So uh, you will not be damaging one of the tissues while repairing um, many others. But most of the geroprotectors protectors that we screened are tissue-specific, meaning that, for example, some of the long-lived cells, say neurons, they accumulate damage throughout a very long period of time. And they activate defensive pathways to cope with this damage. So within our model, we're trying to minimize the difference between young and old states using single drugs and drug combinations. And when we suppress those defensive pathways that are activated during uh, aging, we can actually kill some of those cells. So some of the geroprotectors that uh, minimize the difference between old and young Uh, states will be killing long-lived cells, but at the same time they work very well in uh, fast recycled cells and vice versa. Dealing with tissue specificity is a very big problem. Like with any disease or uh, any drug, especially in cancer, it's important to target your drug to a specific tumor in aging, I think it's the next frontier is going to be targeted delivery of the drug to specific
1: tissues. It sounds like you have of course a lot of experience in the lab but also a lot of experience with the corporate aspect of things. What is necessary to facilitate this sort of research and bring us to the goal of regenerative medicine for the masses? Uh,
0: uh, well, I think First, the major problem in the whole industry is that uh, aging is not classified as a disease. So, even though it has many characteristics of a disease, uh, let's say if you compare aging to AIDS head to head, and you have many check boxes: is it pathologic? Check mark, check mark. Does it lead to many other diseases? Check mark, check mark. Is it sexually transmitted? Even that check mark, check mark. Yeah, aging—you can classify it as a sexually transmitted disease, right? Because well, you come to this life, and at the same time, you are destined to certain demise and decline. Uh, so, aging is a sexually transmitted disease. For us, it's very clear. But to pharmaceutical companies, and to the industry, and to the policymakers, and even to most of the gerontologists they struggle to classify aging as a disease because it's considered to be a natural process and focus on other diseases, well, not other diseases, but uh, diseases that stem from aging instead of uh, looking at the root cause. For pharma companies, it's almost impossible to make money on drugs if aging is not classified as a disease because you cannot really run clinical trials effectively, you cannot get reimbursement effectively. It's very difficult to have a business case if you are not treating a disease. So one of the major hurdles universally is that particular fact. So even some of the biogerontologists, if you are out there and if you think that, okay, aging is not classified as a disease and should not be classified as a disease because it doesn't fit some certain characteristics, just let it go and let's Let's classify it as a disease. Let's uh, lobby the government to classify it as a disease and get to the point where we start developing a roadmap for effective anti-aging interventions and get the pharma companies to buy in. So what our company did recently, we started organizing conferences for pharmaceutical companies. So we are one of the co-organizers of the basel life sciences week we organized the co-organized the aging aging pharma forum at the basel life science week and that's a major industry forum you know basel is the heart of the two large pharma both Roche and Novartis are headquartered there it's number one and number two pharmaceutical companies in the world and many large pharma congregate at this event and through those events we're trying to convey the general message that okay we need to do something to get the pharma buy-in to uh, effectively combat aging. So, I think classifying aging as a disease, getting pharma buy-in, showing them the business models, mm-hmm. getting policymakers in a much more active stance, that's what's necessary right now. It's not even the funding, because there is huge amount of funding out there. The NIH spends over $30 billion a year. China went online and it will... It would invest 309 billion dollars over a five years period from starting from 2011 so you can imagine that they are spending more than the u.s currently on biomedical research nsf has huge funding european commission has huge funding funding is not a problem as a matter of fact large Pharmaceutical companies combined, they probably spend over a hundred billion dollars on R&D. But this whole huge amount of money annually is being spent on uh, things that do not really look at the root cause. Not looking at aging and aging interventions. Most of that research is clinical. Clinical research that is uh, designed to extend uh, the life of a patient on a bath, deathbed marginally. So we're talking about if if you get a drug that's very similar to what you already have on the market, but it tends the patient's lifespan by a year or less than a year. The patient is going to be suffering, not productive, uh, not contributing to the economy. We're talking about huge healthcare bills, but let's say you've got a few more months. The drug is going to get approved and it's going to get reimbursed, but really there is no benefit to the economy and Maybe, in many cases, there is very little benefit to the patient and patient's family because that's the path to a very painful decline in the mines and a bankruptcy. More than 60% of the bankruptcies in, US, in the U.S. are healthcare related. So we need to start thinking about reshuffling the funding spent on R&D by pharma and by the government to actually go a little bit longer in uh, in basic research and uh, looking deeper into what's really happening in aging and anti-aging interventions rather than jumping to, to the clinic to make short-term gains.
1: A quick question. You have studied human beings. You've taken samples from various patients, compared them, correct? Yes and is there are there any insights to be gleaned from the comparative biology of aging between humans and say animals like the naked mole rat
0: our group did not do those experiments but of course many others are doing comparative cross species biology so we compare humans to humans we don't compare humans to animals <laughs> uh, the, as a matter of fact, uh, I don't think that research in uh, short-lived organisms, and I'm talking about some mole rat and uh, the branspat and uh, some other species, let's say long-lived fish, where you have uh, some species that live significantly short lifespans and some species that live extraordinary life well, long lifespans compared to, to very related species, uh, closely related species. Those experiments are valuable because you can find some mechanisms. But many aging researchers, they are actually you know, experimenting with C. elegans, with, with worms and flies, trying to extend their longevity and, uh, through various uh, gene tweaks and then uh, claiming that, yeah, we're going to solve aging using those organisms. I don't think that's the right way. I think we need to use humans as model organisms, right? So (laughs) I'm not talking about experimenting in humans, but I'm talking about using human data. And now it's available in vast quantities and becoming more and more available to find intelligent interventions in aging and to find drugs that have a lot of omics data linked to them and where we can actually find, again, through intelligent design and analysis, ways to repair damage or uh, prevent age-related damage. So essentially maintain or restore homeostasis in humans. Because what pharma experience uh, shows you and tells you is that when you try to extrapolate data, when you try to extrapolate the results from primitive organisms, again like flies and worms, you often don't get to humans. You don't even get really good results in mice. And most of the results uh, in mice do not extrapolate to humans very well. And vice versa. Those uh, organisms were designed, they were evolutionary selected to live the lifespans they live. So if we give them some of our genes they will live longer. But if we take some of their genes, we will uh, probably be incompatible with life. So Some of the basic conserved mechanisms, yes, we might be able to identify and affect them, but um, I would focus more research funding and uh, um, more time uh, of the many researchers who might be listening uh, to bioinformatics of human aging versus cross-species comparison. Because it's important to find conservative mechanisms and affect them, but it's more important to actually understand what goes wrong in humans as we age. Because some of the processes we, uh, that affect us, model organisms, they don't even live to experience those processes, right? Think about mineralization of the connective tissue, right? It's slow, it takes decades, and uh, the effects uh, are apparent later in life. Or think about crosslinks, protein crosslinks, right? It's also it's a very lengthy process. Or racemization of amino acids and proteins. We probably don't even live to the pathologic effects uh, of uh, this process. Uh, not talking about uh, worms or flies or mice. So, I think working with humans is the way to go.
1: So are there, any <clears throat> are there any biomarkers in particular that should be added to standard medical texts as a way of identifying problems before they begin?
0: Well, there are already many biomarkers. What our team uh, developed is a signal-level biomarker of aging. So we're looking at how the various intracellular uh, signaling pathways change the level of activation of those pathways change uh, on a tissue-specific level as we age, and uh, we can use those, as we call it, signaling pathway activation drift, to evaluate uh, the aging processes in humans. And uh, once we understand that, for us, uh, we developed uh, an actionable, a functional biomarker that you can actually affect with drugs or Various interventions.
1: Well, by that I meant adopted by, say, the World Health Agency as a standard set of tests.
0: You can can, can adopt our our, our signalome biomarkers uh, as a standard set of tests, yes. It's tissue specific, but for many tissues, uh, for example, for skin, for muscle, for uh, stem cells you could use those signal on biomarkers as markers of aging because we can clearly show the correlation going from young to middle-aged, to old to very old. And even we can see some of the correlations, not many, but some of the correlations with some of the uh, accelerated aging syndromes like progeria, Werner syndrome.
1: And then with that information, what steps should a person take? could or should take to slow down or reverse the process?
0: Well, in our model, we are trying to uh, mimic the young signaling state in the old old signaling state by applying the various drugs. So essentially bringing the uh, old signaling state closer closer to
1: the young norms. So this particular drug would work across the spectrum or would there be some personalization, say several different drugs? For different people.
0: we um, we age differently, and the things that go wrong in aging vary from person to person. So even though the net, uh, the overall phenotype of aging is very similar, so we've got wrinkles, we've got gray hair, we've got loss of function across the board, but on the signaling level, intracellular signaling level, we have a lot of variability. So there is there are ways to personalize. Uh, Uh, drugs to specific patients. However, uh, there are some universal biomarkers, there are some universal uh, geroprotectors that work ubiquitously in the population.
1: Uh, I was going to ask about the major causes of aging identified by Aubrey de Grey.
0: Aubrey's strategies for engineered uh, negligible senescence uh, model is great and that's the way to go. So, JIRA protectors uh, that we are trying to predict um, will be a patch on the on roadmap strategies for engineered negligible senescence. So, I think that his model is going to yield significant longevity dividends. But to get to his model, to get aging interventions within the SANS model might take a while. So some of, the, some of us are not going to live to the time. And um, our company is working towards developing interventions that will bridge today to up until SANS becomes available. So I think that SANS is a very comprehensive model. So if you think about what goes wrong in aging, and if you were to classify, SANS is a very good way to classify those processes.
1: Things like mitochondrial damage,
0: uh, loss of um, stem cells, loss of regenerative ability, uh, or too many cells, as Aubrey calls it, talking about cancer, protein crosslinks. So, so every strand in sense has very significant logical base. It's very difficult to. Actually, expand it or reduce it. So sources of damage are there, and he classifies it in the most comprehensive way possible. So I would only add maybe mineralization of the connective tissue uh, when I'm talking about when he's talking about uh, advanced glycation end products, because uh, that's also so mineralization is also a source of extracellular stiffness, tissue stiffness, and loss of elasticity.
1: One sensationalized piece I saw making the rounds on the internet said, you believe you will live until you are 150. That's correct.
0: That's how I plan my whole entire life.
1: Aubrey, though, thinks he's going to live until he's a 1,000.
0: Yes, but you might see this kind of attitude in his lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) I... Uh, So that's uh, a very good conviction. However, I try to set realistic goals. So if you, um, it's very difficult to convince yourself that you are going to live to infinity, and at some point of time you are going to get up to the sub-quantum level and travel uh, with the photons somewhere where it's safe, or not, or join the collective intelligence. But those are really nice dreams. We need to focus on what's what's here and what's what's now. The current uh, longevity record is 122 and a half. I don't think I will be doing worse than Jean Calment, who uh, smoked up until she turned 117, and she was enjoying a healthy glass of wine up until her deathbed. I think there is a very good fighting chance to live to 150, and of course, well, as I get closer to that number, I might readjust my expectations. But you need to set your longevity expectations to something that's very achievable, something that's uh, challenging, but uh, you can you you see that you can do it. I think that's something to think about for everybody because there is a theory by uh, Laura Carstensen out of uh, Stanford. It's called the social emotional selectivity theory, which, uh, as a byproduct, postulates that. Longevity expectations affect your behavior and the way you perceive risk and the way, you, the way you act. So if you think that you are going to live to, let's say, 80, you are probably going to stay a little bit longer in school. You are going to marry a little bit later Then, let's say, somebody who thinks he or she is going to live to 40, right? Like in some uh, uh, African countries, for example. With you know the Kalashnikov on uh, on the flag, um, and significant um, mortality in the population not linked to aging. In those countries, you see people acting like they are old, even though they are just pushing 30, because they don't expect to live very long. But if you set your longevity expectations to let's say 150, again it's my assumption is that if in that model you will act as a younger person. So, for example, for myself, I changed my behavior completely. I'm not uh, in a rush to marry. I interact with young people. Well, with academic affiliations, you kind of uh, you are forced to interact with young people. I uh, postponed reproduction, so I don't have any children and I'm not planning to in the very near future because I know that maybe sometime in the the future I would be able to. I don't accumulate assets. Most of the resources I earn, I either invest in uh, the various commercial longevity projects or I uh, just spend on research. I don't believe in asset accumulation, even though some other people who decide to live to 150 and see that as a horizon might actually want to accumulate more material assets just because, well, in this case it actually makes sense. Currently, uh, with finite and short lifespans, uh, you actually don't own anything. You rent it for a brief period of time. You think you might own that house? No. <laughs> somebody else is going to own it after you. Maybe it's going to be your children or maybe it's going to be somebody who is going to take it back from the, from your children. So um, I think uh, it's very important to set your longevity expectations as far as possible, as far as it's believable. But you shouldn't set it too far. You You have to understand that it's achievable. As currently, the way you form your longevity expectations, you look at your family history as number one factor, and the second factor is average life expectancy in uh, in your country or in the world. When we see people living to 150 in your country, we'll probably adjust longevity expectations, our own longevity expectations, to something at or above that level. But currently, it's very difficult to imagine.
1: So you don't think the concept of exponential progress is applicable to biogerontology?
0: No, I do think so. And that's why uh, I'm in this field. That's why our company is uh, uh, investing heavily in biogerontology. But when you're forming your own longevity expectations, you need to set it to something that's very achievable. It's like setting corporate goals. For example, you want your employee to get a PhD, publish 50 papers and also produce uh, $1 or $2 million in revenue per head. But you have to be realistic, right? If the uh, person is joining, uh, just joined your company, you might want uh, to, uh, to start with realistic goals, right? You need to ramp up. And 3-4 uh, months, uh, the person is going to be maybe losing money for the company at some point of time you're going to reassess those targets and make make them more challenging but you cannot really say that you know you're going to be running this company tomorrow you want them to be performing but you need to have realistic targets otherwise they won't work for you and they won't try to achieve those targets
1: you acknowledge the possibility that you will live much longer but oh, of course of course this is your goal And until you reach it, it will remain your goal.
0: Absolutely. I think, you know, infinite lifespans, that's the goal.